Great. So, so yeah, I'm Dan. For those of you who don't know me, hello, assistant pastor here. And my wife, Jamie, is over there at the back. And when we were first married, I spent a year as a teaching assistant up in Mount Sorrel. Uh, in hindsight, I don't know why I drive that far to be a teaching assistant, but I, I was, and I loved it. This was all before I did my teacher training. And part of my role there was ICT technician, which massively exaggerates my computing abilities. Massively. Um, but it became very clear very early on that a large part of my role was going to be removing viruses from teachers' laptops. Because what the teachers would do, I get the same story every time, is they'd be on the internet and a pop-up would come up and they'd go, oh, that looks great. And they'd click on it and it would immediately download a virus in the background that would ruin their computer. So I would spend a long part of my time just trying to figure out how to get rid of these things. Or they might get an email that would say, hey, you've won something. Oh, have I? Great, click on that. They look genuine offers. They look good, they sounded useful and beneficial, but actually they were a trap and they were designed just to ruin these people's laptops. I don't know if we've ever, anyone here ever be brave enough to say they've ever fallen for one of these spam emails? Does anybody ever negotiate with that Nigerian prince? <laughs> no? I feel sorry for all the genuinely in need Nigerian princes these days. I don't get any help. But anyway, the point is that there are always people around who want to trick us and who want to ruin us, and appear like they want to do us good, but actually they just really want harm. And it's always been this way, because uh, it was because of people like that that Paul is writing this letter to this, his true son in the faith, as he calls him, Timothy. We saw last week that that was a really great expression of just how much Paul loves this man, Timothy. His true son in the faith. It's a really strong thing. And we saw that Timothy was an elder or a pastor of the church in Ephesus. Timothy was an elder or a pastor of the church there in Ephesus, which was a coastal town in modern-day Turkey. And Paul had left Timothy there with a really specific job to do. So he reminds him of it in verse 3, and he says that he's told him about it at some point in the past when he was in Macedonia. And also in Acts 20, we've got a really good record of when Paul tells Timothy and the other Ephesian elders of this job during his last goodbye to them. And this job is so important, so much on Timothy's mind, uh, Paul's mind, sorry, that he wastes no time at all in telling Timothy what it is. Have a look at verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Straight from the word go, he's done his formal introductions, boom, he's in, he gets straight to the point. Timothy, stay there in Ephesus to command people not to teach false doctrines. One of Timothy's main roles there was to protect the church of God from the people who were the first century equivalents of those pop-ups you see in browsers, people who were teaching these false doctrines and wanted to do harm. That word doctrine it gets used a lot in churches, and I'm aware some of us might not, it's one of these big churchy words, might not know what it means. So it's probably worth being clear. The word doctrine simply means teachings or a group of teaching on a particular topic. So the word doctrine means teachings. And in this letter, Paul is specifically talking about teachings about the gospel, about the gospel and about gospel living. And while sound doctrine, as Paul calls it in verse 10, was well-known, and had been taught to them, and they'd heard it for years while Paul lived with them. Now there were people who'd come into the church in Ephesus who were starting to teach false doctrines, teaching that just isn't true, 
things that either went against what Paul had already taught them in the three years he'd been with them, or just ever so slightly twisted bits of that. And Paul is really keen that Timothy commands these people to stop. Partly because Paul feels the responsibility of passing on the truth of the gospel message. If you look in verse 11, Paul says that the gospel is something God entrusted to him. Entrusted. That means that the gospel is something really precious and really valuable. And Paul knows that this is a precious thing that God has given him. And Paul knows that the gospel is something God's entrusted him to pass on to others who then know it and pass it on to others who then know it and pass it on to others. God's entrusted this truth to Paul. Paul's passed it on to Timothy. And now already there are people who are twisting it and adding a whole heap of nonsense to it. And so Paul is really keen to remind Timothy of his job there in the strongest possible ways to command these people to stop. And the truth is we always face the same danger. We face the same danger now 2,000 years on. Churches are always at risk of little false doctrines just creeping in, sneaking in, things that aren't always true. And the gospel is always at a risk of ever so slightly just being compromised. But let's be more specific, each of us individually is always at risk of believing a false doctrine somewhere or other, all the time. And yet the gospel has been entrusted to us, and we have the responsibility to make sure that anyone who teaches false doctrine and lies about the gospel, that we spot it and we tell them to stop. So we need to make sure that what we believe really is the gospel and not anything else, which by the way, that doesn't mean we can't disagree on some things. That doesn't mean that anyone we might disagree with on how to do church life or when babies should get baptized or grown-ups or how we do whatever it is, you were to wander around telling them to shut up, it's false doctrine. That isn't what Paul is talking about here. Now, there are loads of good gospel churches in Leicester that believe different ways about church life and how Christians should live in certain ways that we can happily have fellowship because we believe the same things about the gospel. Even in this room, there are differences of, of opinions and theologies on certain aspects of Christian life. I'm not telling you after this service to ask people what they believe on things and time to shut up. No, Paul is specifically talking about the very core fundamental teachings of the gospel, of the good news of how to be right with God and inherit eternal life. If you get that wrong, everything else falls apart. There can be a flexibility on a whole load of other things, but on the gospel, we cannot afford to compromise at all. Like Paul doesn't mince his words about these guys who teach false doctrine. We're going to jump a little bit further into the letter as we look at what this false doctrine looked like in a minute. But in chapter 4, Paul describes the people teaching this false doctrine as following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's strong words, right? That's a strong accusation to level at somebody. And the truth is we need to feel the same about people who teach false gospels. So when supposed Christians, even Christian leaders start changing the gospel or watering it down, I think we need to be really strong in not mincing our words. And we need to not listen to them either. And not listening to them, telling them to stop, is the loving thing to do. Have a look at verse 5. Paul tells Timothy that the goal of this command is love. Well, what command? The command to stop talking. The command to these false doctrine teachers to stop talking. That is a loving thing to do if somebody is teaching things that aren't true. The goal of telling these people to stop is love. Love for the people telling the false doctrine 
in the hope that they might turn away from it and believe truth, but also love for other people in Christian and church families who are being divided and can be affected by this false doctrine as well. So if we need to be aware of that, we probably need to know what false doctrine looks like. It's all well and good me standing here saying, say no to false doctrine, good night. That won't help anybody. We need to know what it looks like. And I think Paul gives us some helpful examples and guidance on what false doctrine will look like. And I think this passage gives us three ways that we can tell them apart, showing us what false doctrine does and what sound doctrine does. And to make, help my brain make it clear, as I said, I've got a table. The teacher in me can't resist the table. Yeah, exactly. So it's on the notes. Feel free to grab some at the front here. Um, and the first thing that false doctrine does is false doctrine decreases faith in God's word. False doctrine decreases faith in God's word. We can see that in verse 4. Paul says that these false teachers promote myths and endless genealogies. Now, what myths and endless genealogies? Paul doesn't say. So we're not entirely sure. Different Bible teachers have got different theories about it, but no one's really 100% clear. But what we do know is that these myths and genealogies, they aren't talking about Bible history and stories within the Bible, and they're not talking about biblical genealogies. These are extra biblical things that they're adding into their teaching or about themselves to make their teachings or them have more authority and power. So when I was a teacher, we did a module on uh, King Alfred the Great. And um, I learned that King Alfred the Great used genealogies to help him keep power. He used genealogies to help him keep power. Look at this, by the way. Dribbled straight down my top. I'm 37, I can't even drink from a bottle. <laughs> but what King Alfred the Great did was he made up his own genealogy, and then he spread it around to everybody, so they go, wow, you're amazing, with the help of this Welsh monk called Asa. We're not all bad as Welsh, but he was. Um, he basically told everyone the lie that, first of all, he was descended from this really famous Anglo-Saxon king called Serdic, and he was also then boasting about how he was directly descended from Noah, which, if you think about it, we all are, but that's irrelevant. But that really helped with the Christianized people of the Anglo-Saxon Britain. You've come from Noah, great, we must trust what you say, uh, Alfred. But then, then he made peace with some Vikings. And they hadn't become Christian yet. So he had to make up a new genealogy. Um, and this time it was on his mother's side. And this time, I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Turns out, he was a direct descendant of Woden, the great Viking god. Yeah, what a coincidence, isn't that weird? The one whose name we get Wednesday from, Woden's Day. He used genealogies as a way of giving himself more authority and power. And perhaps that's what these false teachers were doing. We're not entirely sure. But whatever they were doing, they were adding to God's word from all sorts of outside sources and using that to increase their own authority and the authority of what they were telling people to do. Which is the exact opposite of what sound doctrine does. Because sound doctrine increases faith in God's word. Sound doctrine increases faith in God's word. So in verse 4, he says these myths and genealogies promote speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in how God's shown himself through his word. Faith in what God has said in his word. I mean, read through 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy, and you'll soon see just how much faith Paul has got in God's words. And Paul wants Timothy and the church in Ephesus to grow more and more in trusting God's word as the ultimate and only authority 
on all things to do with the gospel and gospel living. Not anything else, not anything extra, God's word alone. He says we don't need new understanding of these fancy genealogies or new teachings on things. We don't need history or science to back up what the Bible says in order to believe it. And let's be honest, if the books or the podcasts or the sermons we're listening to encourage us to not trust in the Bible for itself, if they don't grow our confidence in the Bible, and if they say that what we really need to understand the Bible is just a little bit more information that I just happen to have, to really understand what the Bible really meant on these issues, yeah, it looks quite black and white there, but it's a bit more complicated than that, then please can I encourage you to lovingly stop listening to those things and stop reading those things? There are huge churches, church leaders, and entire church movements that would have us believe that the Bible is not enough and that we need more, their version of the Bible, or that we need a new, fresh understanding to get a fuller picture, and they'll back it up with all sorts of claims and speculation. But God's word and everything it says stands on whether we can trust it or not. And I want to encourage all of us today that we entirely can trust God's word. In Paul's second letter that we've got to Timothy, Paul describes God's word as being God-breathed or God-inspired. And sound doctrine, sound Bible teaching will only increase our faith in the Bible and our dependence upon it more than anything else. And if the things we hear and do and teach here at Avenue don't cause us to trust the Bible more and more, then we really need to be very careful. I want you to call me out. (laughs) Richard would want you to call me out. Your home group leaders want you to call them out. Sound doctrine increases faith in God's word. If you're a student, I know there's some here this morning, or if if Ethan, you're watching this online and you're trying to find a new church in your new university home. If the church you go to doesn't encourage you to trust the Bible more, get out of it. I cannot, that's the most loving command I can give you is to do that. And that is because of the outcome of the two different types of teachings. Like Jesus says, doesn't he, by the fruit of someone's actions, we'll really know whether they're genuinely his or not. Well, Paul agrees because he tells us here that false doctrine disrupts love and unity. So false doctrine decreases faith in God's word. And as a result, it disrupts love and unity. Have a look at the outcomes of these myths and endless genealogies in verse 4. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Controversial speculations. Basically, the stuff these guys were saying meant that people just fell out. We're constantly debating, oh, I like that idea. That disagrees with you. I think you're wrong. Um, And disagreeing, and they're imagining all sorts of other things to bring into it. A bit later on in Timothy, in chapter 6, Paul describes these false teachers as having... An unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant frictions. That's the outcome of this false teaching. He says that they also use their false teachings for their own benefit and comfort. He says that they've robbed the truth and that they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. False teaching is destructive in gospel communities and local churches and among Christians. All it does is promote speculations, arguments, disagreements, and it reduces faith in the Bible. It ruins unity. 
So these false teachers, it seems, were saying, hey, the way to be right with God isn't clear really. From the, they, they, these, these guys say it is clear. Let me tell you, it's not quite clear. Look at these things I'm adding into it to tell you. If you take these stories, you can really understand the Bible a bit better. And then, then if you do what we say, you'll know the way to God properly. Oh, God doesn't really mean this, what they say. These guys who say that, they take just the Bible. Oh, they're bigots. Don't listen to these people. No, no, listen to us. We're much more loving and kind with our new teaching. And they'll accuse people who don't believe what they believe of all sorts of backwards thinking. And they'll get their followers to call them it as well. And it just ruins unity amongst Christians, doesn't it? It causes all sorts of divisions. False teaching, it really does disrupt love and unity by encouraging divisions and disagreements through all of these different speculations that it promotes. But on the other hand, sound doctrine fuels love and unity. Sound doctrine fuels love and unity. We've already seen from verse 5 how Paul wants Timothy to not even tolerate this stuff being taught because of how much he loves them. And the truth is, if we love one another, we will want each other to know sound, good, true gospel truth, and we'll want to remind each other of it constantly. The outcome of us really knowing and believing and teaching good, sound doctrine and believing good, sound doctrine is that we will love one another more and more. And sometimes, loving someone looks like calling them out to stop believing stuff that's nonsense. It is loving to tell people what they're believing isn't true. Love is so key for the witness of a church. Not niceness, love. And sometimes love means rebuke. I mean, Jesus made it clear on the night before he died, didn't he? If we love him, we will love one another. The opposite of that being, if we don't love one another, we don't really love Jesus. And that one another means other Christians, first and foremost. And I think our church families, first and foremost, those ones we've committed to in membership and unity with. That's how the world around will know that Christianity really is true and believable. Not by history or science backing up what we say, but by how we love one another as a local church. The 20th century theologian, a guy called Francis Schaeffer, says, and loads of amazing stuff. But he, commenting on this, says, If we do not show love to one another, the world has a right to question whether Christianity is true. If we do not show love to one another, the world has the right to question whether Christianity is true. And the challenge of that is that we can have Sundays like we've had the last few weeks where we've learned and we know we are the household of God and that we believe the Bible and the gospel. But the truth is, if we don't actually show love to one another, sacrificial, servant-hearted, putting the needs of others above our own, patient, kind love, if we don't show that as a church family, then that legitimately calls into question the gospel we claim to believe. Paul says that in verse 1, doesn't he? In, in, sorry, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I make any claims to follow the Bible and any spiritual great claims, but if I don't have love, I've got nothing. I don't really have the first lot. But when we do love one another, when that costs, when that's tiring, when that's hard, when that means being willing to have that awkward, deeper conversation that we really want to avoid in truth, when that means confessing sin and failure and weakness and being embarrassed about that, when that means saying sorry for the ways that we have failed to love others, 
When that means we've got to deny ourselves and the things we want so that we can love and serve other people in our church families. Well, that is real gospel-fueled love. And that is such an incredible evidence of the sound doctrine really being true and having an effect in our lives. So it's worth us thinking, how is our love for others here at Avenue Church showing itself? We all joined in when we talked about the everyone involved things. How is it showing itself? How are we getting involved? Is it just in words and text messages and agreement? Or is it in deeds and actions and sacrifice and self-giving? The stuff that costs more. How is what we claim to believe shown in the way we live with and love others and prioritize time with them over any other interest we have? You see, if we claim to believe the gospel but it doesn't lead to love for each other, then the Bible questions if we really do believe the gospel at all. And it's always a mixed bag, isn't it, in any church family? There's always going to be some tremendous examples of sacrificial love going on, and I get so encouraged by seeing those. But let's not be naive to think that there are people who aren't necessarily showing it sometimes. Sound doctrine, real gospel doctrine, will always result in increased love for and unity with other Christians. But the final way that false doctrine will show itself is that false doctrine, it'll twist God's law. False doctrine will twist God's law. See, these teachers, they remove trust and faith in God's word. They cause division by not only adding things to God's word, but also by using God's word completely wrongly. They take good things and they twist it to be false. Have a look at verse 7. Paul says, these guys, they want to be teachers of the law. Now, that doesn't mean the laws of the land or like speed limits and taxes and stuff. This is talking about the Old Testament law, God's law that he gave his people. And these false teachers, it seems, are taking chunks of the Old Testament and they're twisting it to teach nonsense. Look at how daft Paul thinks these people are. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, they want to be seen as super clever and super wise, but they don't know what they're talking about. In chapter 4, we read a little bit about this teaching, and we read that these guys are teaching that stuff like marriage is wrong, and that there are certain foods they shouldn't eat if they want to be right with God. They're basically saying, if you you do certain things and don't do other things, then, and only then, can you be right with God? You've got to obey these laws. Yeah, there's this good news gospel Jesus stuff, but you've also got to obey all this stuff here. If you don't do these things, you can't be saved. So make sure you follow the right rules. Make sure you do what we happen to understand and tell you. And while you're here, if you want to know some more stuff that you really want to get a little bit extra holy, give us a bit of money and we'll tell you a little bit more good stuff you could be doing. And we'll tell you, we'll give you more rules. And look, I'm taking all of it from the Old Testament. So it's clearly true, right? Basically, they seem to be selling a kind of legalism bit of rule following, a sort of earn your own forgiveness doctrine. They're taking God's law and they're twisting it to tell people that there are rules they have to follow in order to be forgiven. And Paul calls that false doctrine in the strongest possible way because, he says, sound doctrine uses God's law properly. Sound doctrine uses God's law properly. So these false teachers add rules and they add regulations in the things they have to do. But Paul says that is wrong. The law, he says, is good. But only if we use it properly. The way it was meant to be used all along. So that raises the question, okay, Paul, how was it meant to be used all along? What is the proper use of the law? Well, frustratingly, Paul's not explicit in these verses what that is. (laughs) 
He does tell us that proper use of the law, though, is in line with the gospel. And he hints at the result of the proper use of the law and that it ends in uh, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And for the Apostle Paul, the proper use of the law in a true gospel message, we know this from his other writings, is to convict people of how far short of the standard the law sets we all fall. The proper use of the law convicts people of how far short of its standards we fall. In Romans 3 verse 20, in the middle of probably Paul's most thorough explanation of the gospel that we have, he says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by doing works of the law, by by obeying everything the law tells them to do. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The Old Testament law is and never was meant to be a tick list of things to do in order to be right with God. No, the proper use of the law convicts us of sin. Proper use of God's law convicts us of sin and shows us that simply following it won't and cannot produce righteousness and perfection that God demands from his people. That's why Paul gives that fairly horrible list in verses 9 and 10. It's a big list, isn't it? And it's one that our culture, again, will accuse us of all sorts of things if we're reading out loud. And Paul doing this, he's not finger pointing. He's not saying these people all need to be convicted by the law. Look at these horrible group of people. They need the law. He's not a list we think we're meant to read and go, I'm none of those. That's all right. This is a list of things that's meant to include everybody. We've all done bits of this law breaking, even if it's only in our hearts. You see, God's law shows God's perfection. But it also shows our complete inability to meet up to it, no matter how hard we try or how nice we are. If you are not a Christian here this morning, the Bible and Christianity is not a tick box or a code of conduct for you to live in order to go to heaven when you die. It just isn't possible to be good enough to get to heaven when you die on your own. No, the law is there to show everyone that it's just not possible and that we're in desperate, desperate need of help. So the law points to the gospel because it points to our inability to save ourselves and it points to our need for a savior. It shows us that we need somebody to keep the law on our behalf and then to take the punishment for all of our lawlessness that we deserve in our place and somebody who's going to be so generous as to give us all of the blessings and benefits of their obedience. So the law points to Jesus That's why Paul says in verse 9, the law is made not for the righteous. The righteous, in Paul's eyes, doesn't mean someone who's been really good all their life. It means anyone who's had their sins forgiven and had been declared once and for all righteous by God through their faith in Jesus and in his death and in his resurrection. For people who've been forgiven by Jesus, the law has got no impact on them. If the law's proper use is to convict people of their lawlessness, of their disobedience, If you're a Christian, the law has got no power over you anymore. You've got nothing to be convicted of. All of your sins have been completely forgiven by Jesus on the cross. All of your unrighteousness has been taken away but onto him, and he gives you all of his perfect righteousness perfectly forever. So the law has got no power over you. It can't convict you of your guilt before God because in God's eyes you're no longer guilty. It isn't something, therefore, that you need to keep to be forgiven. And it isn't something you need to feel guilty about failing to meet anymore. Jesus has done it all for us. 
And the evidence of sound doctrine is that even when we fail and mess up and sin, we're reminded, verse 5, that we really do have a pure heart and a good conscience, thanks to Jesus. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's just the gospel. The law points to the gospel. We've messed up. We've rebelled against God and deserve a punishment we can't avoid. But Jesus hasn't. And Jesus willingly takes the punishment we deserve and gives us the reward and the inheritance that deserved uh, only by his obedience that we could never deserve. And then Jesus dies and he rises again to help us. If we trust in him and him alone, he now lives forever to help us live more and more in obedience to what God wants. Less and less rebellious lives that honor him. See, false teaching will always try and creep in. We always try, we have these little legalism things in, don't we? Ah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really read my Bible today. I'm going to have a bad day. Or oh, I messed up again last night. Right, I need to be good enough today before I can pray to God tomorrow. I need to make up for what? No, none of that. If you're a Christian, completely forgiven. All done, all finished at the cross. The law has no hold on you. People will always want to try and rely on themselves. We will always want to try and rely on ourselves and things we do to make ourselves acceptable for God. And we'll try and dis disregard the Bible. False teachers will always come along that tell us the stuff we do need to do in order to be forgiven. Repent and believe, that's it, is the truth. But they'll always come in and try and disrupt the unity and the love of God's people by saying, oh, those guys think they're Christians. Oh, they're a bit right-wing and a bit bigoted. Ooh. And they'll twist the law to make it look like they're right. That's why, as Christians, we need to be individually people who are in our Bibles. We need to know what the gospel is if we're going to defend it, right? So we need to know what the Bible does and doesn't say in order to defend it. But we also need to be people who share our lives with each other so that we can talk about these thoughts when they crop up. We're all at risk all the time of slipping into false doctrine. So we need to speak to people so they can go, I'm not sure that's quite right. So we can shut down false teaching before it grows in our own hearts or in our home groups or in our churches. And we always, always need to be reminded of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, we cannot ever outgrow as a Christian, ever. We need it again and again to realign us. That's one of the reasons that we're about to take part in the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder for God's people of the gospel. This simple meal we're going to take in a moment is a, uh, a regular reminder for all of God's people of the gospel. So as we close, I just want us to take a moment and to ask God to show us if there might be any false doctrine creeping into our hearts in any way, any secret legalism, any laws that we're expecting ourselves to either keep or expecting others to keep in order to look good enough to come to Jesus and be forgiven. The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus has done it all, that there's no more law to keep to be forgiven, which again doesn't mean we can just do what we want. If you love somebody, you want to please them, and the law reveals what pleases God. If we love Jesus, if he really has forgiven us, we'll want to please him and honor him. Not because we have to, but because we love him. And the gospel reminds us of his love for us that compels us to love him as well. I want us also to think, are there brothers or sisters that we're not living in love and unity with at the moment? Perhaps even in this room. Are there sins that we need to repent of, either to God or to each other, that we haven't done yet? Have we been hurt by somebody and we're refusing to forgive someone or even tell them that we're hurt because we're a bit too proud to seem so soft? 
the Lord's Supper reminds us of the unity Christ won for us all to have at the cross. Why not do that repenting in the next few minutes or during the next song to whoever we need to, whether that's someone in the room or in prayer. But the Lord's Supper reminds us that God's word, shown in his perfect son, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, is all that we need. Nothing more. Like, this is a really simple meal, isn't it? Bread and fruit juice. But it points us to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he's revealed through his word, ultimately, in Jesus. So this morning, let's let the Lord's Supper, with God's help, to help us strive to be a people who love one another with love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Jesus has won that for us. Let's seek to live that out for him, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we're sorry about those things we believe that just aren't true. Lord, we're sorry about those things we so easily believe about you, that you expect demands of us that just aren't true. Sorry for the, the false you we can often easily paint in our eyes. Thank you that we want, uh, sorry, Father, we're sorry that we want to do more than we ever can towards our forgiveness and our salvation. But Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that points to our desperate need of a saviour, but then the brilliant saviour we have for our need. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this Lord's Supper we're about to take that reminds us of that. Lord, we pray that we would be people who are living in unity and love, in dependence on your word and in daily regular reminder of the gospel. Thank you that we're free from the curse of the law and the condemnation that brings. Help us to be people who honor you and love you and live for you more and more. Thank you for the change that we're having in our lives through your Holy Spirit, making us less lawless increasingly. And Father, we want more of that, and we pray that you'd help us to love one another in doing that, be patient with one another, to support and care for one another, to forgive one another, to spur one another on to love and good works. And help us, Father, to be willing to call out sin and false doctrine if ever we see it in each other. Help us to love one another wholeheartedly as a result of loving you more and more wholeheartedly. Amen.